This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. As we approach Yom Ma'ut, uh, Israel's 75th birthday, our society is still deeply divided, and it's clearly still a very tumultuous time here in Israel. We've had months of social unrest and mass protests in opposition to our government's judicial reform legislation. And while I assume most of our listeners at the very least appreciate the need for some kind of judicial reform to make Israel a more democratic society, there are many people in this country who either oppose taking power away from the Supreme Court or oppose the reforms taking place at the pace and at the scale that our government had been advancing this legislation. So in the spirit of pushing back against the tribal political echo chambers most people find themselves in online and on social media these days, I thought it would be productive and important to bring someone who's been present at many of these protests and who's been very vocal in his opposition to our government's judicial reform legislation onto the show. But our guest isn't just some random protester. Samuel Hyde is a researcher, a political analyst, a theorist, a regular columnist, and really one of the most articulate English language spokespeople for neo-Zionist politics and thought. And by neo-Zionist, I of course mean the application of Zionist ideas to the Jewish people's current socio-political context. He has edited a former Labour Party Knesset member Einat Wilf's book, We Should All Be Zionists and is currently working on a new book with Wilf entitled Political Intelligence. Uh, Samuel Hyde, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Yehuda. I'm happy to be here with you. Uh, so just to get us started, um, as we're approaching the state of Israel's 75th birthday, uh, do you have any special thoughts to share on Yom Ma'ut or where you see this state at this point in history? Yeah, I think that we are at a very, very uh, interesting time. I think that you you summed up in, in the introduction perfectly. I think that um, what we're seeing now is, uh, and I think the greatest mis, uh, you know, mischaracterization or misconception, especially that's happening from uh, people who may be listening that are outside of the state, is that what is happening on the streets is necessarily per se um, about those who in theory support judicial reform and those who in theory oppose judicial reform. Um, I think that the polls are consistently clear that a majority of the Israeli public, a broad center of the Israeli public, um, including myself, are in favor of some form of judicial reform. I do see the need for it. Um, most people, uh, in tandem, according to the polls, as well as according to uh, protests, which has essentially been the longest and largest turnout in protests in Israeli history, are against these particular reforms for, for various reasons. So I think we're entering our, um, uh, essentially our 75th year birthday at a very interesting time. Um, for me, it is both as an as an Oler, it is both uh, who works in the field that I've worked in, it is both uh, very interesting and very touching and very sad, all bundled in one at, at what is going on. It's, um, it, is an, it is a testament, the, um, 
the staunch opposition as well as the staunch support and the essentially the dividing line which is never which is never a good thing when society when a society is being ripped apart by by powers but um the the staunch willingness to debate and willingness to um you know engage in the right to assembly on both sides and um etc etc does show the, uh, that there's a, a, a strong democratic fiber and fabric in this country for its society and its operating principles so on the one hand i'm very positive about where we're at regardless of whether we agree or not and uh, on the other hand i'm very sad to see that um that we're in a polarized situation and that unfortunately powers at the top are using a lot of societal resentment between different peoples in order to uh, gain more power for themselves out of the system essentially and um and i think that that's something that uh, that is both interesting to unpack uh from the perspective of what i do for a living and uh, both sad as a as a civilian i think it's very interesting that you used that phrase uh, powers at the top because i agree with you that both sides in this really see themselves as fighting for democracy at least how each side interprets it um and i think both sides of this struggle uh, really experience themselves as punching up yes from the, from the perspective of those who support the coalition and the judicial reforms you know they really see the supreme court as this uh, you know self-perpetuating oligarchy uh, that represents the narrow interests of a westernized ruling class uh, that seems to have been very successful at rallying the media and academia and all of the major economic players all of the you know the wealth of the country and the security agencies to its side whereas i think from the perspective of the protesters and you'll tell me if i'm wrong it really appears to be this government the executive branch that appears to be trying to centralize power you know in its own hands and remove all checks and balances to its own ability to rule uh yeah i think i think that's a pretty accurate description i mean i i think that in, in tandem what's happening is a blitzkrieg of legislation essentially advanced by this government right there's been about over 140 bills advanced in just over 100 days in office and that in tandem with the specific proposal of the judicial reform um has basically taught us that the actions of this government have displayed an inherent weakness of the Knesset as a body um and therefore i believe that if if the narrative on the side of those who support uh, the judicial reform is to accept that uh, justice minister barack in in the 90s his decision in 95 i think it was to ratify the basic law and give it constitutional authority essentially in practice violated the tension between the supreme court and the government by handing too much power to the to the courts then i think that one must only logically conclude that this government's proposed judicial uh, legislation violates that same tension just in reverse by handing too much power to the government and yes um indeed in in my perspective uh with far more uh, 
damaging and dangerous consequences than that of Barack's because it erases judicial review. So mm -hmm. I, I think that any proposal that's going to be put forward or should be put forward or any discussion that uh, should be happening um, between the two opposing sides should be aimed at essentially restoring the tension between the branches. Uh, that's when democracies are health, healthiest and in doing so, strengthening the power of the Knesset, not an elected government with a temporary majority, uh, anything other than uh, strengthening the Knesset and handing power to um, essentially a, a, an elected government uh, is in many ways a total violation and Israel need not be in a position where it needs to face some risk of regime change every four years. Um, so my, my biggest concern is that what we're leading towards and this I'm speaking now purely from a technical you know perspective um, is that we're leading towards a situation in where we live in two universes essentially the universe of the Supreme Court uh, where it will still be able to cancel um, the decisions of the government because they have constitutional authority so the Supreme Court even if the government had to pass this bill completely let's say as it stood which it is important to acknowledge, the architect of the plan, Yeri Levine, has since come out and said that certain parts of the bill, the criticism was genuine and certain parts of the bill would be unacceptable in a democratic country. It's very important to, to be able to acknowledge that. That's not to say that reform is not, um, is not needed or necessary. Um, but, uh, but the Supreme Court can essentially, if the government passes this bill, Almaleh completely as it stands, as the original proposal was, the Supreme Court can still convene the next day and essentially say, well, this goes against the basic laws and therefore we're cancelling the passing of this. But then the government in their universe, they're living in the opposite universe where they've cancelled the, the authority of the Supreme Court the previous day in the Knesset. So, so that, that leads to a very dangerous situation, especially in terms of security. Uh, I'll, I'll just say quickly, like, let's say there's a Palestinian outpost in Area C that's being built and um, the government say to the army, the outpost needs to be removed. Um, and the Palestinians essentially protest towards the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court look at the case. They look at Israel's basic laws. They look at various different factors. Uh, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so but they look at various different factors and they decide that this goes against Israel's quasi-constitutional document and therefore they tell the army not to do it. In that in that moment, essentially, you've got two universes. Who does the army, who does Halevi, etc. listen to? Does he listen to the government telling him to remove the outpost or the Supreme Court telling him to not remove the outpost? So that's a very, uh, that's a situation Israel's never found itself in and I think that the fear on the streets, the fear um, within people's homes comes down to things like that, when essentially you have two branches of the government living in two different universes, which results in two collectives also living in two different universes. And that, and that can be dangerous. Right. Uh, first of all, I, I'd like to think we've avoided that crisis. I'm not sure what fruit will be borne by the negotiations currently underway. But I think it was also made very clear to the entire public that in that scenario, the security forces will by and large adhere to the dictates of the Supreme Court and not the government. 
Uh, I think that that realization might be what uh, caused the government to, you know, pump the brakes. I think so. Uh, I I think that um, you're 100% correct. That has been that has been stated. Uh, should I should have clarified the way because I was speaking in the context of what this judicial bill was originally, and, and that and I was speaking about Yariv Levine's proposal and where this bill could have led us. Uh, I, I I agree with you. I don't think that we're there anymore. Uh, but what I what I essentially am suggesting is that you've got people who see the Supreme Court in the perspective that they that uh, why they are against it. Um, I think as uh, as some members of of the government have called it a tyranny that needs to be overthrown, and then you've got other people who see the Supreme Court as essential for uh, a, a democracy, judicial review, um, and uh, any healthy uh, uh, check on government power. Um, so uh, I think that um, what has come out of this is a clear sign that the Knesset's <laughs> the Knesset is displaying inherent weakness, and and, and that is more where the will of the the power of the people is, uh, because this government, you know. Uh, it might have won a sweeping victory when it comes to seats, when it comes to coalitions, but it only won the popular vote by 30,000. And that's important to remember. So the will of the people is in the Knesset. So if it is about the will of the people, then the Knesset is what needs to be strengthened, not the Supreme Court nor the government. And that's my my kind of avenue that I think could be a healthy, a healthy medium ground for Israeli society that could uh, yeah. No, I'd like to hear how you think we can strengthen the Knesset. But before I ask you that, I just want to address something you said. Uh, first of all, I think that the initial proposals that were put out there, uh, that, I, that I agree, uh, appeared to be a bit of an overreach because it, uh, it aspired to both change the socio-political uh, composition of the Supreme Court and empower the government over the Supreme Court. I don't believe both are necessary. I'm not sure that Yeriv Levin or Simcha Rotman believe that both are necessary either, although I haven't spoken to them about this. Uh, my assumption is that they really expected negotiations. I don't think they expected the reaction they got. I think they thought, like, you know, if you've done any shopping um, in this country or any of our neighboring countries, you know, sometimes there's a, an opening price that can be negotiated. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they were doing. Uh, I think they were just putting out their starting position in order to negotiate somewhere in the middle. That, that's my assumption. Again, uh, it's my suspicion. I can't say with complete certainty that that's what was going on. But at the same time, though, I, I think this tension you spoke about between the executive and the judiciary, um, it, it's an important balance to maintain. And I think, uh, I, I don't think we disagree. I think that uh, we, we both would like to see a balance between these branches of government. However, I, I would always stress that if a perfect balance is impossible, I would always like to see the imbalance uh, tip in the direction of the people's representatives, meaning those who are actually elected by the public. Um, if one branch has to have slightly more power than the other, I, I think that that should be the branch that's elected by the public. Sure. I mean, look, I think I think for the most part on this, we we completely agree. I think you touched on a on a on an important point there. Um, the staunch opposition to this was essentially the radicalism 
um, and the manner in which this bill was advanced. Now, that that is politics in many ways. That's how politics operates. I am um, in this book I'm writing with Enak called Political Intelligence. It it discusses uh, power, and we um, that's kind of the central thesis of it. And we 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 basically discuss how power is the currency of politics, the same way economy is the uh, the same way profit is the currency of um, business. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially how how politicians operate. They want as much leverage power. I think what the government essentially did in, you know, I'm going to be a little bit more harsh in my sentiment in in their declaration of war on the fabric of the state on on the on the judiciary is they forgot the first principle of Sun Tzu's The Art of War, that it should be avoided first with diplomacy and it should be fought strategically to minimize damage and the wasting of resources. And that heading into battle from the get-go is uh, essentially already an admission of defeat. And I think that the government uh, grossly miscalculated their bet, their betting hand in this case in failing to comprehend that most Israelis are unwilling participants in um, in such a case. Uh, you know, I I uh, as a, as a researcher, I'm always hesitant to look at polls. Right. Uh, polls, polls tend to, especially in multiple countries around the world, tend to not be entirely reflective. The only time I take polls seriously is when I see polls that are spanning from, uh, you know, nonpartisan research centers as well as media channels from the left wing and the right wing. And there's multiple of them. Let's say there's um, there's various polls coming out weekly for five weeks in a row that show the same trend. Um, and the fact that the the last poll that came out from a right-wing media channel showed that only 38% of Likud voters are behind this government and 71% of the population are against the actions of this government um, shows a broad consensus. And that is the same broad consensus that we see for moderate judicial reform, which is why I'm saying that I think that the greatest error of this government was that they declared war, essentially, uh, they, they they declared political war. Let me put put it that way, on in many ways the fabric of the state, and in uh, many ways on the, the 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 tension between the branches, which which could have been restored. Um, and and they did this all in a country that shows uh, broad support for moderate judicial reform, which begs the question as to as to why they did this, and I think that's hidden in the uh, other hundred and forty bulls. That, uh, that I, could, I could try answering that question as to why they did it, uh, why they did it in the way that they did. Uh, I think, first of all, um, you know, as you said, you know, power is the currency of politics. I think a lot of uh, members of this government made the mistake of assuming that because they won an election, they took power. Uh, they didn't take power. They don't control the money in this country. They don't have any real sway over the media in this country. They don't really control the security forces in this country. They really just won an election. And probably the the best thing they could have done is what I think Bitsalo Smotrich did last time when he was the transportation minister. Just do the best job you possibly can and show the country that you're professional and good in your tafkid, good in your position. Uh, I think what they did this time, you know, falsely assuming that they had achieved power, is they began to lash out against what they and a lot of their voters experience as an oppressor. 
as an oppressive force, meaning there are a lot of people, the Jews who live in the West Bank, uh, by and large, relate to the Supreme Court as an oppressor. And, uh, and then there are a lot of reasons for that we can go into if you'd like, but uh, I don't even think it's relevant because I'm, I'm really more interested here in explaining their motivation and their psychology. Also, sure. it, it's important to note, uh, first of all, I, I think it's very unhelpful generally to uh, apply Western political framings to Israeli society. I think it's very inaccurate and leads to all sorts of errors in our analysis. Uh, like, you know, liberal, conservative, right, left, secular, religious. These are all terms that grew out of another civilization and I, and I think are deeply connected to that civilization. I think they're, they're very much the products of, you know, Christian dogma and uh, Greco-Roman thought and the revolutionary transition between feudalism and capitalism. But when applied to our society, I think that they, they can only go so far and they ultimately lead to very faulty analyses. You know, just to give an example, I think that when we talk about the left in Israeli society, we're, we're really talking about what's called like first Israel, like the, yes. the, the westernized Tel Aviv establishment. And when we talk about the right in Israeli society, we're, we're really speaking about a collection of groups or, you know, second Israel, a collection of groups that have experienced themselves as marginalized by first israel that includes revisionist zionists that includes mizrahim jews from arab countries that includes mitnachlim like jews living in the west bank that includes haredim um, we we might even throw jews from ethiopia or the former soviet union into that category although it, it might be a little bit uh, complicated uh, and all of these groups have for the most part uh, it, it's funny because some of these groups would actually be considered you know, far left camps in other countries. Like you just look at Shas's election campaign, that would be a far left party in any European country. But here in Israel, we essentially define the left and the right as first Israel and second Israel. I agree with that. I agree with that assessment totally. Uh, I think um, I think the politics, uh, um, I'm not sure if this is a common phrase, but um, I did write a piece once called The, the Politics of Resentment and how resentment as a political force has essentially never been adequately appreciated in its role that it's played throughout history. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of, you know, there's various uh, features that you can look at Look at it, you can say, well, uh, how, how different would the world have been if George Washington's uh, fellow British officers had treated him and his Virginia militiamen with dignity during the French and Indian War rather than dismissing them as merely Americans, which is at the time an insult, right? And, uh, would would he have become a rev the revolutionary father of the new country? What if Clemenceau had not forgotten the contempt with which you know the French were treated by Bismarck after being defeated in the Franco-Prussian War? Because his bitter resentment led to the eventual terms of the Versailles Treaty. The German resentment of these eventual terms was then skillfully exploited by Hitler, leading directly to World War Two. You can even you can even put you can even take that that concept and look at the Palestinians. How Palestinian resentment towards the Jewish state caused them to reject various uh, peace offerings, Camp David one and two and Taba, even though these deals would essentially have birthed a sovereign independent state ending the occupation, um, uh, birthing a, a capital in East Jerusalem. Uh, our society is rife with similar historically rooted resentments uh, that are dictating our, our current political discourse. And, um, uh, you know, 
as you've mentioned, the, the political disposition of Israel's Mizrahi citizens has been molded essentially by, by the resentment of how they were treated by the Israeli left wing, the Israel One uh, establishment when they arrived in Israel. Um, and, uh, and, and I can understand it, obviously, uh, granted the context of exactly how they were treated. And I can also understand um, how, uh, for lack of a better word, how how irritating and in, insulting it might be to a, a population when essentially a group of uh, intellectuals lecture them that Arab and Muslim anti-Jewish attitudes have no consequences, given that that they were essentially um, um, essentially uh, in some cases ethnically cleansed, and in other cases uh, fled for their lives from these from these um, from these uh, from our continental neighbors, essentially. So. Um, I can understand this where it's at. I, I think that it's very important that Israel starts defining its path uh, away from the politics of resentment um, because they only intensify any form of conflict, any form of division. And um, how we how we how we forge that new path is is not necessarily up to me as an individual to decide. Uh, but I do think that it starts with some level of uh, empathy um, and, and trying to understand the other's experience um, and not at the same time, regardless of our affiliations, not allowing politicians to exploit this resentment and hostilities to uh, push their specific agendas. Mm. Um, and I think that in many cases, at the likes of um, Vetslav Smotrich, uh, Itamar Ben-Vir, um, and those camps are very much weaponizing the very real pain and uh, societal resentment, turning it into the politics of resentment and using that to push their agendas. And I think that the same can be said for, for other politicians on the other side. I don't, I don't not acknowledge that either, uh, but, I, but I do think that that's uh, you know what you what you've brought up about first Israel and second Israel is essentially uh, is essentially very very uh, very true and, and fair analysis. Well, I, I want to stick a pin in one of the things you just said um, about Palestinians because, to to be honest, I I think they were right to reject every offer of peace that if if you want to even call it peace that Israel made. And to be honest, I'm embarrassed that uh, our elected leaders even made such offers. Uh, I don't see how Palestinian, any self-respecting Palestinian uh, could accept such an offer, nor do I think we should have made them. I, I think there are a lot of offers we can make and, and a lot of compromises that can be spoken about. Uh, but what was being offered to them was essentially insulting. Uh, and I'm sure we can debate that. But before we do, I'd like to uh, just finish the point that I began to make, because I think it's important to point out that from the perspective of these different marginalized groups that together have come to be known as the Israeli right, there's a trauma of feeling like they've won electorally, but being betrayed by those they elected. Uh, whether we're talking about Menachem Begin uh, giving away the Sinai, or we're talking about Bibi Netanyahu giving away 80% of Hebron, or we're talking about uh, Ariel Sharon relinquishing Gaza. Um, th there's a trauma on the Israeli right of feeling that as soon as our representatives achieve some kind of power, 
they sell out on their principles, you know, they betray the will of their voters. And I think that that trauma is part of what motivated uh, certainly people like Smotrich and Ben Gvir to, uh, to push so aggressively, like you said, to declare political war. Um, because I think that they wanted to show their voters that this is not bad, that we are trustworthy, that you'll get what you voted for. I think that was part of Smotrich's message to his public. Like when you vote for me, you're going to get exactly what you vote for, that I am going to go and fight for the values of this community in parliament. Um, I, I would say about Smotrich, because I think it, it's probably necessary to point this out, I see Betzalus Smotrich as somebody who very much represents the identity of many of the Jews living in the West Bank, the identity, the worldview, the understanding of Jewish history, the understanding of our connection to this land, maybe our understanding of our destiny. Um, but I don't think his political conclusions uh, represent all of us, certainly not me, like like I often say about Smotrich, you know, like we share an identity, but we differ on our political conclusions. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I think that's sometimes an important thing to separate uh, because, because the Jewish identity he represents uh, is a very real, powerful, deeply rooted uh, identity that, uh, that many people in this country share. Um, the question is at what point do his politics practically turn off those voters who share his identity and don't see any other political options to represent them um i mean i think uh i think you brought up a, a, an important point uh there essentially has uh if i can say within the religious zionist faction particularly in the in, in the west bank there has been a dissatisfaction with the state that has uh motivated almost increased participation in the state itself. Um, and I think that this is what we're witnessing now. So there's more status camp, which, you know, is Vesla Smotrich, Ben Gvir, et cetera, et cetera, um, is no longer satisfied essentially with the, with the classic Zionist state, but wants to run the state of Israel in greater accordance with specific religious principles. Um, and I think that this trend only became stronger after the 2005 disengagement from Gaza and Northern Samaria, which, uh, as you as you pointed out, which was seen as a form of betrayal by the state against the religious Zionist community and possibly its perceived historic uh, mission of, of, of the greater Israel uh, theory and, 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 and bringing about messianic redemption. That's something you get wrong. I've seen you write about this in some of your articles. I, I think you seem to make the assumption, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the ideological motivation for building Jewish communities in the West Bank is that it would somehow usher in a messianic age. And it may be in the same way that uh, Chabadnik uh, telling Jews to put on tefillin or light Shabbat candles will bring the Messiah. Uh, that's not really what that, that, that's not really the perspective of the jews living in the west bank or the students of rav Cook. i understand how um how somebody from the outside could land there but uh, that's not really what's motivating the jews living here uh, or you know fighting to maintain the west bank uh, under jewish rule it's not that this is a magical thing that will bring a messianic age 
Um, it's the fact that we're back here, the fact that we came back to our land after 2000 years. Um, against all odds, I, I can't think of any other example of an ancient people that was destroyed yet maintained its identity in gas form for centuries and then came back to the land it had been displaced from, revived its language and retook political possession of that land. I, I think that's uncanny. That's unheard of in history. Uh, and we're just participating in that process. You know, for thousands of years, we dreamed, Jews everywhere dreamed about returning to places like Jerusalem and Hebron and Bethel and Shiloh and Shechem and Bethlehem. And now we have the chance to do so. Now we have these places under our control and uh, it's important to us to prevent it from being taken away from us again. I would say that the Jews in the West Bank are not monolithic. Ideologically, we're a little bit diverse. You know, a Jew in Yitzhar is very different from a Jew in Efrat. A Jew in Malay Dumim is different from a Jew in Hebron. But I think there's an ideological common denominator that over 95% of Jews living in the West Bank probably share. And that's that we're a proud ancient people from this land. We were unjustly displaced against our will, somehow managed to survive against all odds and actually succeeded in coming back here. And we experienced the international community trying to displace us again through a two-state solution. And we are therefore determined to resist that. And the only method of struggle we've come up with so far is to populate as much of the territories as we can in order to make relinquishing them logistically impossible. That's basically where we're at. I personally feel we can move on to other methods of struggle, even though I've spent the last 20 years of my life creating new communities, new Jewish communities in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Uh, I'm at a point where I feel we need to balance that or compound that, um, combine that with real political alliances with certain forces within Palestinian society. I think that real alliances need to be made between us and our Palestinian neighbors that can actually lead to us both getting what we want. So I, I, I want to touch on, uh, I want to attempt to just touch on a, on a few things that you've mentioned and they, they are they're all joint, uh, but they're, they're slightly separate. Um, the first thing is when you spoke about um, that the peace deals were essentially an injustice. Uh, I, I want to make an argument slightly outside of this, and then I, I would like to go into the, the kind of uh, religious aspect of what we what we were speaking about, because there's a historical argument to be made um, that exists and, and one that cannot be uh, essentially blissfully ignored, uh, and that's the global reality. So with the fall of colonial empires and the birth of nation states, essentially all peoples, whether the Greeks, Armenians, Bulgarians, the Turks, the Czechs, the Poles, um, come to a point in history, uh, we see 100 new countries born throughout this, this period, the fall of the colonial empires and the birth of nation states, come to a point in history where they had to choose between liberating themselves or continuing a struggle for what is perceived by that collective as a more just territorial outcome. Now, despite controversy and internal strife, all these peoples choose liberation through sovereignty rather than holding on to an extended territorial domain. Um, now, that was to everyone's benefit when you look at that, in, at that scenario. Everyone chose that method besides for the Palestinians. Um, now, one of my issues with um, the settlement movement 
comes in is that in the operating principle, it mimics the Palestinian formula, which in their which in their case, in practice, it must be acknowledged, even if it sounds harsh, has amounted to nothing but self-destructive chains of political and moral errors. You just have to look at Russia today and how it's choosing this path again. Their annexation of Crimea in 2014 has had devastating effects, not only on Ukrainians, but on their own population. Okay, the country's gone essentially from a global superpower to having an economy that's smaller than that of the state of California. And they're currently in a state of war with Ukraine and many people are losing their lives. And that's why I believe that if we distance ourselves from our differing perspectives on ideology, we are, we are met with uh, specific global realities. And I think that the um, what what you spoke about about um, let's let's just call it right wing establishment leaders getting into positions of power and not following through on these ideological moments, it really can be a, a mirrored parallel to let's call it the left wing establishment and their and their um, and their pursuit of, of of peace. It took disengagements. Peace officers at Camp David and Tabba, et cetera, et cetera, various ones to realize essentially for the left-wing establishment that this conflict has less to do with 1967 and more to do with 1948. Just as it's taken the right-wing establishment multiple um, attempts at annexation and attempts at territorial expansionism to realize that their goal is as unrealistic as well. And uh, and essentially, when we speak about the religious communities and the way in which we had spoken about them, about essentially religious Zionism, Datim, who attributed great religious meaning to the state, um, and you mentioned uh, uh, Rabbi Avram Kut, um, seeing hidden religious meaning in states and that the, the Zionist Jews were believed to be carrying out God's will essentially in a hidden manner, even if there's nothing hidden about it. The no, it was hidden essentially to the to the Zionist Jews who 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 were carrying out God's will in a hidden way, even if knowingly. I'm talking about the the, the Zionist establishment, the Zionist Union, who founded the state. That's what I'm saying. The Torah gives us a mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to possess the land of Israel. What the Zionists did was they took possession of the land of Israel. They created a state which is perceived by a lot of rabbinic leaders as the vehicle through which the people of Israel collectively perform the mitzvah of sovereignty over our land. There's nothing hidden about that. That was always... No, no, no. I'm not saying that's hidden. I'm saying that that was not the Zionist Union's aim. Mm -hmm. and. And the establishment of the state was seen as that. You see, after the establishment of the state, essentially, um, in religious Zionist synagogues, new prayers are essentially adopted, equating the state of Israel with the, with the beginning of the Messianic process. Um, and the 1967 war is essentially seen as, this, as a holy war and a miraculous victory. As was the war against the British, meaning the war against the British was also a holy war. To free our sure. Land. And... Um, what I'm what I'm saying is that essentially secular Zionism, or let's call it classic Zionism, Zionism is fine. Okay, let's say Zionism. Zionism is a revolution in Jewish life. Essentially, the Judeans who were exiled by the Romans uh, two millennia ago 
might have in the in in the, in the first uh, couple hundred years seen of their return as a realistic possibility but through our exile that essentially transforms itself into a longing predominantly practiced through ritual and prayer and that one day a descendant of king david will come and lead the jews to sovereignty in the land of their own but you're erasing several practical attempts to return no 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 i'm 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 acknowledging those practical attempts i'm acknowledging those practical attempts i'm going to i'm going to get to that and i think that there's um there's a reason and this would be something i'll mention on zionism that i think that will will actually both agree on um but zionism essentially in practice turns around to the jewish people and says how long have you been waiting for 1000 years 2000 years and zionism essentially creates this political program for the benefit of the end of the exile and the co collective political uh, organization of the jewish people to claim sovereignty in the land of their own and in many ways okay because this is where we see the split at the start at, at the start of the state between israel's two uh, let's say two predominant religious world views um occur is uh, the establishment of, of the state of Israel in some ways proves the proves or shows an, alter, uh, an alternative vision to the state that was promised to the Jews by the uh, rabbis and prophets. And, and for religious Jews in Israel, the question of what is Israel has been a long-standing debate that dates back not only to the beginning, not only to the establishment of the Jewish state, but back to beginnings of Zionism. And uh, what, what, what we're speaking about from a religious perspective is, is Dachim and religious Zionism. But there's also the uh, other opposing factor, which is the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, who from the onset took a negative view on the state and essentially saw the Zionist state best as a refuge for Jews, but attached no symbolic significance to it. And others within this camp, such as the Satma community, have actively opposed the state since its founding, seeing, seeing it as essentially rep representing anti-religious forces for the very reasons that we're speaking about. Now, their 100% of you mentioned were very real, practical um, liberation movements, if you want to call that, in order to, to return the Jews uh, back to their land throughout the, uh, throughout the centuries following our, our exile. And I always say, well, why was Zionism essentially successful? And a great misconception people make about Zionism is they essentially say that Zionism is the 2000 year longing for Jewish people to return to the, to the land of Israel. That to me is one component of what Zionism is. But it doesn't explain Zionism and it certainly doesn't explain why Zionism was successful in the particular period that it was successful in. Because if that is the only reason why Zionism was successful, then why not in the 15th century? Why not in the 12th century? Why not in the, in the 13th century? Zionism is essentially the other two um, um, components to Zionism is the failure of emancipation, the failure of the promise to the Jews of integration and equality which essentially returns the Jews at that point away from the perspective of performing mitzvot to bringing the Mashiach, a descendant of King David, to return to the land, into political action, into human action, and human action is a result of the Enlightenment period. In many ways, Zionism has parallels to feminism as a movement in that perspective. We could say that Zionism has a very dialectical relationship with the Enlightenment movement. 
in that on the one it's a continuation of the enlightenment without the enlightenment there would be no zionist movement uh, on the other hand we could say that zionism was very much a rejection of what the enlightenment period did to jewish identity precisely to, because in order for jews to obtain um whiteness in france and germany inclusion citizenship etc um we had to basically stop being palestinian refugees which is essentially what we were until that point you know like until the enlightenment we certainly the jews in europe uh self-identified as refugees from the land of israel organizing our communal life which was separate from our host nations according to a portable version of the civilization that the Romans had destroyed, knowing that we're going home. We're going to go home and telling our children from generation to generation, we don't belong here, we are going home. Next year in Jerusalem, it wasn't just a cheesy slogan, it's something we meant. And it was only with the Enlightenment that suddenly we got to be a Frenchman with a Jewish religion or Germans with a Jewish religion. Yes, agreed. So I agreed. And Zionism was in many ways a return to the original uh, principles which the uh, Judeans saw, saw their return. So I think it's important here because it, there is a conflict going on in Israeli society right now. And I think how we define Zionism, and, and what's interesting is that you and I have a lot of political disagreements, but I think we agree on what Zionism is. I personally find it very anachronistic to refer to uh, Shimon Bar Kokhba as a Zionist or to refer to Elazar Ben Yair or Yudah Maccabee as Zionists. I think that Zionism is one link in a very long chain of Jewish liberation movements. As you mentioned before, between Bar Kokhba and Herzl, there were several Jewish liberation movements that attempted to restore Jewish independence in Palestine. Um, Zionism is the word we often use because Zionism is the link in that chain that happened to succeed. And we can get into why, you know, I, I mean, you started to talk about why um, Zionism succeeded where all of the previous Jewish liberation movements failed. Um, I think part of it, well, I, I would argue that Zionism partially succeeded, uh, meaning Zionism succeeded in bringing us home, uh, creating the infrastructure for a state, reviving our language but if not for if not for the lehi which was not zionist i don't think we would have ever had a state meaning i don't think the british would have ever left you know the british had major uh, economic and uh, political interests in remaining here and it was only the underground that was decidedly not zionist that stood parallel to zionism that was able to really uh, force the british to leave through making the price of occupation more expensive than the benefits of exploitation in this land. So I think that, that Zionism was largely successful. They did everything but liberate the land, which is an important but, but still, um, they managed to take power, they managed to write history in such a way that uh, the achievement of political independence was really their doing. I, you could see it in a lot of the literature and a lot of the school curricula at the time, I would say that they went to an extreme on this, to the point that even when it comes to things like the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, they completely wrote their political opponents out. And we're not even talking about sternists, we're talking about uh, revisionist Zionists like Betarim. You know, they were completely written out of the historiography. Uh, and uh, just, you know, it was all, it was all Mapai, it was all Hashomer Tzair, everything, you know, all of the heroism of the pre-state age was really just their people. Um, that, that's part of what led to a lot of the resentment we're talking about today. Uh, I think the fact that so many people in Israeli society 
feel that uh, they've been suppressed and oppressed in this society too long. Uh, and now we're, we're getting to a point where second Israel is becoming the majority. All these different groups that comprise second Israel essentially have won or are in the process of winning demographically. And that's important because either this country is going to remain a democracy, but change socioculturally in a direction that reflects the population uh, and the sociocultural trajectory of the population, or it's going to remain an outpost of Western civilization in its own eyes, or as Ehud Barak says, a villa in the jungle, but non-democratic. Like when I see, I, I understand that there are a lot of good people participating in these protests, including yourself, but when I look at the sentiment motivating, because I, I honestly, I don't think it's just about judicial reform. I think a lot of it is really about the identity of this country. What is this country supposed to be? What is this state meant to be? And it reminds me when I see when I see Israelis marching in Tel Aviv against the judicial reforms, but really speaking against second Israel, it reminds me of white nationalists in the United States chanting, you will not replace us. Like they're trying to hold on to an Israel that no longer... I, and by the way, I've seen it also in like uh, election campaigns. I remember when Yair Lapid and uh, Benny Gantz and uh, Bugi Alon and Gabi Ashkenazi all ran together on one list, Kahol um, Levan, right? And it was like they were, they were selling to the public the Israel of the 1950s. Right, the the good-looking Ashkenazi military generals with the Irlapid. He's good-looking too, even if he's not a, a general. And like that's what they're selling. They're selling we're going to go back to what Israel was like in the 1950s, and that might be appealing to some of the country, but it's offensive to a lot of the country. I can I can totally understand that. But what I will say is that if anyone possesses policies, worldviews, and um, and sentiments. That, have be, that can be detected in numerous statements and actions that are reflective of white nationalism. It would be the likes of Beslal, Smotrich, and Itma Ben-Vir, who are very much literally convicted criminals for incitement to racism and violence and have been involved in organizations, been in either involved or have defended people that are in organizations who have committed egregious crimes towards peoples that are not part of their camp. I can appreciate how it might appear that way on the surface, but I think when we look a little bit deeper and we become more sophisticated in our analysis, we come to the conclusion that this actually doesn't hold water. You know, almost all of Israeli society tends to see Palestinians as an enemy population we've been locked in conflict with for roughly 100 years, uh, and maybe even as the spearhead of a much larger Arab assault against our existence here. What I think is different about figures like Smotrich and Ben Gvir and their voters, uh, for the most part, the more militant Jews living in the West Bank, it's not how they relate to Palestinians. I think it's the meeting of how all of Israeli society relates to Palestinians with a different kind of Jewish identity uh, that is much more assertive, uh, much more tribalist, uh, maybe even much more Tanakhi, uh, biblical in a sense. And they're relating to Palestinians as like an enemy population that we're at war with and asking, well, what would, you know, our ancestors do in such a situation? And that's how they try to behave as opposed to, you know, Israelis from Tel Aviv who might see Palestinians the same way, 
but ask, well, what would be the right way to handle this according to the more enlightened Western countries? And I think that's really where the difference lies. And I think once we realize this, we also come to the conclusion that the answer isn't to suppress this group of Jews or to tell them their identity is wrong, but rather to change the role Palestinians play in their story. I think that's the answer across the board, that we want to change the roles Jews and Palestinians are playing in each other's stories here. And I think that once we're able to do that, we'll see that this form of Jewish identity is not only not all that problematic, but could even be conducive to helping us create better relationships with our neighbors. Okay, and I think that that is that is a that is a that is a great misconception. But I, I will agree with you and say that out of out of what is going on now, it isn't about the the the, the main the main sentiment in the country. It's not about judicial reform. I think I touched on that earlier. I said it's not really about people who, in theory, support and people who oppose out of what is happening now, two divergent visions for the future of the state of Israel, which essentially marks a division and a clash of two fundamental ideologies regarding the essence of the state, have have come to the surface and they've congealed among Israelis over the decades. This is just brought through uh, through to the surface. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to I, I do want to touch on something that you spoke about um, I think that, you know, often everyone around the world, it's a trend to um, for, for any of us to kind of get carried away in the discussions of identity and ideology, often at the expense of reality. And I, um, I just want to bring us bring us back to something because you spoke about um, the uh, the goals of the settlement movement, how that's portrayed, the, uh, the demographics essentially of that. I don't know if that's the term that you want to use, but, you know, uh, uh, creating as many settlements within the West Bank as possible. Um, and I'll, I do want to just say that, you know, this is this for me is is really just part of the reality is that even after decades, OK, the settlement uh, movement has essentially uh, failed to fulfill its three stated goals, which has changed the legal status of the West Bank. That hasn't happened. Achieve economic independence. That hasn't happened. And convince the majority of the public to adopt the greater Israel ideology by opposing partition of the land into two states. Any which way you look about that in any credible research uh, institution, whether it's nonpartisan, left wing, right wing, shows that those three things are, those three things have not happened and aren't happening and are not even anywhere near the trajectory of happening. Okay, because without the state's massive ongoing support in all areas, whether it's financial support, military protection, legal shield, civilian services, the settlements in the West Bank are not sustainable. Okay, and I think that at the end of the day, it's important to start having discussions on what is actually in the betterment of Israel. And I'm saying I'm using the term Israel and I'm not using the term the Jewish people because we have 25% of our population that are not Jewish. Um, and uh, Israel's top defense experts, uh, and this is not a result of, uh, of their identity. This is a result of deep, deep security analysis. This is not just coming from the top brass of the IDF. This is not just coming from um, uh, people like the INSS, who are actually ranked the number one security research institute in the world. Okay, Israel's top defense experts agreed that the settlements played a security role in the past, but this is no longer the case. 
and far from helping defend the country, the scattering of Israeli civilians throughout the West Bank is now actually encumbering the work of security forces, it's draining the defense establishment, and it's complicating the, the work of the IDF by lengthening the lines of defense. And this is where things come in. Are we preferencing identity and ideology over life? Because that's the point where we're actually at. Well, I would actually argue that all of those security experts are really looking at all of the data that they're examining through a lens of ideology. I think it's very important for us to understand how ideology actually operates. But I'm willing to stick a pin in that and let you finish your point. I want to, I think what originally actually sparked our, our, our discussion about doing this was, a, was when we met in person at a, at a birthday party and I just released an article that looked at three models of engagement of what is happening and has happened on the ground, right? So those three models, I'm going to try sum them up very quickly, are number one, the West Bank status quo. The status quo in the West Bank is where military remain, civilians remain, and violence continues to persist. The opposite model, the direct polar opposite model of that was Gaza, where both the army and Israeli civilians are completely removed and violence persists. Now, I do want to add a caveat to that. It must be acknowledged that between 2005 and uh, between 2000 and 2005, okay, 157 Israelis lost their lives connected to Gaza violence. Between 2005 and 2023, 97 have lost their lives. Okay, that's a significant number showing that despite what is going on in Gaza, hundreds if not thousands of Israeli lives, Jewish, Arab, uh, whoever, have been saved. But the third model that is important to acknowledge is one that splits down the middle. Okay, it is not the West Bank model, the status quo, and it is not Gaza. It's the Northern Samaria model. And the Northern Samaria model has been proven a success in the fact that the army remained, but civilians were removed. Now, this was successful in that the once very hostile area became the quietest and least violent region in the territories for 15 years, between 2005 and 2020, up until the point that civilians started moving in, illegally squatted in that area, uh, and turned it essentially turned it into the West Bank model. Okay, and from that point on, there's been endless violence between Palestinians and Israeli civilians. Israeli civilians on Palestinians, Israeli civilians on IDF, on uh, on police force, IDF on Palestinians. Essentially, within two years after changing that model back to the West Bank status quo, in many ways, it is now the hotbed of Palestinian terrorism coming out of the Jenin area. Now, ideology, whether it's mine, whether it's yours, whether it's the next person's or whatever, is not going to protect us from violence. Okay, and um, and I think that the there's there's many misconceptions when it comes to to the settlement movement, and that is to uh, the great failure of of all Israeli administrations. It doesn't matter whether they represent first Israel or second Israel, and it's to the great success essentially of of, of Yesha, uh, if you want to say. It. Um, but you know the, this this is this is kind of would be that um, that the settlements are impossible to uh, to to remove because of the 
the the, the yearly growth rate and, and the amount of of Israelis living in the settlements. Okay, the, the the reality is that the, the settlements peaked. The yearly growth rate peaked in 1991 at 16%. Um, in 2021, it fell to 2.24%. Okay, and at the end of 2022, it was recorded at 1.8%. This is according to the Israeli Bureau of Statistics. And uh, and that is important. And uh, I, I'm I'm far more interested in looking at the reality on the ground and actually trying to make decisions that are for once not either out of resentment for the other and that includes resentment for the Palestinians and not out of resentment towards other people's ideologies or ideas. We are all going to have different ideologies. We are all going to have different ideas and in many ways that is what makes Israel uh, a, a, a strong democratic society, the way in which it operates. Um, and we're all going to have um, uh, you know, pain and trauma from the past. I don't think there's anyone that exists in this land that doesn't have some sort of transgenerational trauma, whether it's from from the birth of the state of Israel leading up into, to today, which, which needs to be acknowledged and dealt with deep, deep empathy as the Mizrahi citizens um, have due to the way in which they were treated by first Israel, or whether it is coming from a place of prior the establishment of the state of Israel. So that is something that from a societal perspective cannot be overlooked. But from a political perspective, Israel needs to really start operating in its own best interest. And uh, and we have not we have we have not done that in any form. We did that in the northern Samaria model. Then we relinquished that model. And this government has gone now and entrenched the, the, the end of that model with the disengagement repeal law. And I think that it's very fitting that people, great Israel ideologues like Itamar Ben-Vir and Bezalel Smotrich, essentially their parties were the one championing this bill. And I think it results back to the resentment in which we spoke about, about uh, how they feel that prior second Israel establishments have, uh, have promised them one thing and failed to implement it uh, in practice. But just because that is the feeling, that doesn't mean that is necessarily in the best interest of Israelis, uh, I just want to touch Israelis as a collective and the country as as, as a state and an institution. Um, and I, I do want to just touch on 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 a, on a few more things. Can I respond to what you've said so far? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. You, you just put so much on the table that I don't want to forget uh, what I have to say. So you said something very important. You said we have to decide what's in our interest. Uh, what is the national interest of the people of Israel? And we haven't done that. Um, we haven't defined our interest. The truth is, as a society, we have not defined our... You have an idea of what our national interest is, and I have an idea of what our national interest is, but we haven't had a proper public conversation about what our interest is. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, but I think it's healthy for any nation state to really define what its interests are before it makes alliances, before it pursues policies, etc. Israel has this tendency for the last 75 years, we've had this tendency of first deciding who we want to be friends with, uh, who we want our allies to be, and then kind of remaking our interests in order to suit the interests of those potential allies. We've had this uh, habit of letting different forces within Israeli society run in different political directions and the state often has to catch up. I think a part of the way you've uh, 
explained the Jewish presence in the West Bank is a manifestation of that. I think that the Jewish presence in the West Bank, some of it is the result of state policies and some of it is the result of activists on the ground creating facts that the state then has to deal with and make decisions on and catch up to. Now, getting to the actual situation on the ground here, um, I don't remember, wh where did you serve in the army? I didn't by the time I made Aliyah. It was, um, I was past the draft age. So what I did was I did uh, I did some national service. Okay, okay so I was a soldier here during the Intifada, a uh, combat soldier. And mm -hmm. we often slept in Jewish communities, uh, including small illegal outposts. Uh, we would sleep in these communities ahead of important missions. Like, keep in mind that one of the driving reasons that Golda Meir and Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres and Ariel Sharon built Jewish communities in Gaza and in the West Bank was because they appreciated the value of a friendly civilian population in the territory our military has to operate in. When it comes to our challenges with Gaza today, our army does not have the same options it once did because there's no longer a friendly civilian population on the ground. Now, there, there are many ways in which a friendly civilian population can assist a military force, whether we're talking about uh, treating wounded soldiers, restocking ammunition, supplies, regrouping forces, etc., etc. And, you know, I, I would actually make a larger security argument. I'd say by populating an area, whether it's the West Bank, Gaza, the Golan, doesn't matter, Jews make it difficult for the state to relinquish that territory, which then forces Israel to maintain its strategic girth. I mean, could you imagine what the situation of Jews in Netanya and Tel Aviv would be like today if Hamas was able to fire rockets freely from the West Bank, from the mountains overlooking Tel Aviv and Netanya? Like, meaning the situation with Gaza is it seems to be, I don't believe it's really maintainable. The truth is, I think the status quo in Gaza is not tenable at all. Uh, but I think that it has the illusion of being tenable until it's not. But we have to remember that the Land of Israel movement that was established after the Six-Day War did not only include national religious rabbis, it also included several highly respected political leaders from across Israel's political spectrum, from kibbutzniking like Yitzhak Tebenkin, to veteran underground leaders like Israel Eldad and Giula Cohen. It included uh, literary icons like Shai Agnon, Uri Tzvi Greenberg, Nathan Alterman, and also security experts like Isser Harel, the first head of Har Mossad, Avram Yofi, meaning to pretend that the entire struggle to retain the territories won in 1967 was waged exclusively by Harav Tziyuda Cohen Cook and his students is not only untrue, I think it does a disservice to the other figures involved. And yeah, today we can find that the majority of military experts in Israeli society would argue that we can relinquish the territories won in 1967. And that might even be true from a, I, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't think it's even true from a strategic perspective, but I do know that in our army, in order to advance to a certain rank, you have to be of a certain socio-cultural and ideological mold meaning the type of people today who would disagree with that military analysis uh, are not becoming Ramatkal, are not becoming chief of staff, are not able to... Now, now one day they might, because right now, uh, as it is, it appears 
that the fastest growing number of low-level combat officers are coming, if not from homes in the West Bank, then certainly from educational institutions in the West Bank, uh, and are coming from a certain ideological perspective. I, I think it's part of the shift taking place in Israeli society. So maybe one day we will have military leaders who take a different position. But, you know, I, I said earlier that um, it's unhelpful to try and apply these like Western political framings on Israeli society, you know, right, left, religious, secular, etc. Uh, what I do find helpful, uh, very helpful, in fact, is applying our tribal identities. Like I would definitely look at you as somebody from the tribe of Yosef. The tribe of Yosef is a very important leadership tribe in Israeli history. Yosef is very good at managing the material world, economies, armies, statecraft, etc very much wants to find Israel's place among the nations. Uh, I, we could say that Zionism, from uh, from the perspective of Vilna Gon, who predates Rav Kook, we could say that Zionism is the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, the messianic force of Yosef, that when all of those talents are directed towards Jewish national liberation, all of the things that some Jews, especially post-Haskalah, were doing for other nations elsewhere are suddenly redirected towards our own national liberation. That's the messianic force of Yosef. I'd say the Jews living in the West Bank are largely Yehuda, Shimon or Levi, um, the Haredim or Yisachar, but there's also a tribal identity called Gad. In ancient times, Gad was considered the warrior tribe. Like the, the greatest warriors of Israel came from the tribe of Gad. It's said that you could tell who they killed in war because those enemies would be missing their head and right arm, right? That was the fighting style of the tribe of God, that they would be able to take off uh, an enemy's head and right arm in one strike. Now, one of the things that's said about the tribe of God, even though they were great warriors and great military leaders, they often lacked a broader perspective on Jewish history and Jewish identity and the meaning and impact of their military actions on the national development. So you can show me great generals who are good at war and will say, hey, we can retreat from the cradle of Jewish civilization. We can, I, I don't know how they'd explain it. I don't know what argument they use to say that we could give up the mountains overlooking our airport and our Knesset and our stock exchange and expect that nobody's gonna fire rockets from those positions. But even if they could make that argument, I think they'd still be missing the broader scope of Jewish history and what it means for the people of Israel to return to places like Jerusalem and Hebron and Bethel and Shiloh. And yeah, I'd say some things are worth giving up life for. I think the land of Israel, I, I'm only at best, I'm here 120 years. I think the Jewish people having Judea and Samaria in our possession is more important than whether or not I live or die. Some things are more important than life. Okay, so uh, I think uh, you, you spoke about Gaza. What, what my point was, was saying is that Gaza was successful in the fact in that it reduced the loss of life. I don't think that anything about the Gaza disengagement was successful, which is why I spoke about the model which was successful, which is Northern Samaria. And that is essentially the argument that is being made by branches of the defense establishment as well as uh, private security institutes, uh, both in Israel as well as actually the PCPR, the Palestinian Center for Policy and Research. Um, essentially, what you're looking at is um, is this conflation, and, and and I think you're right to touch on all the on all the other people that that don't follow Rav Cook's um, 
um, ideology that were involved in the in the settlement movement. Uh, you know, I think I did actually mention earlier that the state of Israel did support the establishment and the growth of the of the, of the settlements. There's no doubt about that. And this, I also mentioned that there was no doubt about it that at one point in time it played a vital security uh, role. But that's no longer the case. And this right. is where the great issue comes in, is the conflation between settlements and occupation, okay? The reason why I speak about the Northern Samaria model is because it shows us a clear trend. The Northern Samaria model, unlike the West Bank status quo, where civilians remain and settlers, uh, where civilians remain and military remain and violence persists, or Gaza, where both military were removed and civilians were removed and violence persists, the military remained in Northern Samaria. The civilians were removed and violence decreased. It plummeted up until civilians moved back into that point. That is a that is a, a almost an undebatable trend line. We saw 15 years of very low violence. And from the moment that the model gets transformed back into the West Bank status quo, violence increases. And secondly, we know that the settlements are not the first line of defense because wherever the IDF aren't, the settlements aren't. Okay, so essentially what I'm advocating for is I am saying that an, an occupation is a result of a war, not the cause of the war. And the, and, and the people in, in Israel, one, who are making the argument of ending the occupation in order to end the conflict are essentially flying in the face of all logic. What I'm saying is that military will remain and civilians will be removed. I understand from your perspective, and I appreciate the honesty that you said that you're prepared to give up your life for Judea and Samaria. And I can I can assume that there are many of you. I don't want to say all of you. I, I, I haven't spoken to every single person who lives in Judea and Samaria. I can assume that there are many who who, who are Go, uh, are with that and I assume that there are many who are not with that. What I will say is that the majority of the Israeli public are not prepared to give up their life, are not prepared to risk their children's lives or their grandchildren's lives for that. And if we have a successful model that not only benefits Israel from a security perspective, from a life perspective, from an economic perspective, why should it not be tried? Why should it not? Why should the status quo not be broken in favor of a model that has already proven successful? Okay, because the reality is, I would not advocate for anyone to be removed from their homes in this model. Okay, this idea, okay, which is, which is essentially, in fact, pushed by propaganda. Okay, and often it's Western. Uh, let's call it Western far left-wing intellectual propaganda, okay, that the settlements are irreversible is just not true. It's not true when you look at the numbers, okay? In any form of, of policy that Israel speaks about, okay, there's let's, the, the, the last thing that I saw in 2022 in the Central Bureau for six of us, there was approximately 550,000 Israelis living in the West Bank. Of these, some 220,000 live in East Jerusalem and its environs. They're not candidates for evacuation. Okay, of the remaining 440,000 who only make up 14% of the total West Bank population, 
The vast majority live in the, what is known as the settlement blocks, territories joined to Israel's sovereign territory and also not be up for evacuation. So what I'm saying is that if a majority of people, we're talking 85% of the people living in this area, get to stay in their homes at the same time as a model is implemented that are going to protect not only their lives, but the lives of nine other million people, benefit the economy, benefit Israel from a legal perspective in every single which way you look at it, what is, what is wrong with doing that? Because you're still speaking about expelling 15% of West Bank Jews from their homes for a policy that wouldn't even come close to meeting the needs of Palestinians. Is it an element of that, in your perspective, it is just in order to have full Jewish control over, the, over Judea and Samaria? Yes, that's important to me, and obviously to a lot of other Jews. And where does that end? Because we saw Beslau Smotrich standing up in front of a map of Greater Israel that included Jordan, that included other territories, Sinai. These are sovereign territories of other countries that we have peace with. And the reality of the matter is, is that, you know, like we, 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 we you kept hitting home a point that this is not a discussion that's taken place among Israeli society. And I think we're having that discussion right now. And I think it has taken place and I don't think it's taken place enough. But at the same time, Israeli society has also shown, okay, its complete willingness, okay, and it's shown actually its trajectory just as 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 uh, recent as two years ago with the Abraham Accords. Netanyahu was speaking about annex at annexing the territory, annexing parts of, of Area C. And when the UAE came to the table, which I don't actually believe he was going to do, I believe that it was a typical Netanyahu. Uh, a plot line, the guy being against annexation for many decades, um, but essentially uh, just to open flight paths between Israel and Dubai, okay, between Tel Aviv and Dubai. We traded annexation for peace and normalization, and that peace and normalization has had incredible, incredible effects for all populations involved, okay? And if it wasn't for that, children in the UAE, in Morocco and Bahrain, wouldn't have had their education curriculum um, rewritten. Essentially, where they're learning not only about the Holocaust, not only about Jewish history, but they are they are no longer being taught of Israel as some form of colonial entity. They are being spoken about that the Jews who live in Israel, the state of Israel, is part of a long line of the children of Israel, and they are a natural integrated part of the region. But at the same time that that is happening, there is support and recognition for two states, for two peoples, Okay, and I think that Israel has continuously shown um, that that essentially every time Israel is faced with that choice, it has chosen the path that it chosen through the Abraham Accords and it has routed some form of incredible diplomatic, economic, societal, economic progress. When there is progress on those fronts, it benefits the society. Israel is an incredibly successful country, okay? Yes, there's a lot of flaws that are going on in this country, okay? There's a lot of issues that we need to deal with, but it's almost an unprecedented story. It's a 75-year-old country, okay, that's birthed at the same time as 100 other countries, okay? And under far more difficult circumstances, unprecedented in many ways in comparison to other countries, it has maintained its dem not only its democratic institutions, 
but it has maintained an upward trajectory. And it has done that because for the most part, when push comes to shove, we're very ideological people. We're very dreamlike, we're very thing. But for the most part, when it comes to it, Israeli leaders, whether from first Israel or second Israel, make the pragmatic choice. And that is important. I understand that you're saying you're prepared to give up your life for Judea and Samaria, but I, 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 there's various polls, there's various research projects that will indicate that the vast majority of Israelis I'm pretty sure it would be over 90% of the country are not prepared to give their life up for that. And I'm including the ultra-Orthodox who exempt themselves from, for, who have military exemptions. So they are in practice are not prepared to do it. Okay. I cannot see that the Arab Israeli population would be prepared to lose their lives so Jews can have control over, over um, Judea and Samaria. And I, I do not see the other, the other, let's say, you know, five million Israelis being willing to give up their life to control Judea and Samaria if their option is a more successful model that has already been proven to be successful. It's already proven to be successful and we're not implementing it. And I think that that is to, that is to our own detriment and it, is, and it goes back to the politics of resentment. It's because we are making decisions based on indignation for other rather than what is in our own best interest as a state, as a people, and uh, as a collective civil society. So again, that brings us back to this question of defining for ourselves as a society, what's in our best interests. I'm hoping that one of the things that's come out of this friction that we've seen really come to the surface in the last few months here between the different tribes of Israel is that we can have a national conversation. We can have the conversations we've been avoiding since 1948, you know. Yes. You know as well as I do that we were supposed to create a constitution during our first Knesset. And uh, here we are. Because, because no one, you know, typically Jewish man, a very authentically Jewish man, you know, I'm sorry to make light of it, but uh, sometimes it is uh, in such contentious topics, it is good. In a very authentically Jewish manner, no one could agree on the rules of the game. And now we are facing the consequences of that. And it is, I agree with you, that it is time to ask these questions, not only from a technical perspective, uh, but from a perspective of the fabric of civil society and the direction that we want to head and what the grand strategy of the state is. But being, and I mean this in the most pragmatic way, when we discuss as a collective, as a people, what are our interests? What are our goals? You know, where do the Jewish people go next? And I'm, and the, the truth is for me, like Jewish people and Israel is synonymous because I think most of Israeli society, when we say Israeli, uh, we mean the people of Israel. I, I think it's a little bit dishonest to talk about Arab Israelis. I think they are Palestinians. They can and should be our allies. We can be partners, we can be friends. But I think most Israelis in this country, when they say Israeli, they really mean the people of Israel, the children of Israel, the Jews. And I think that really expressed itself a couple of years ago when we saw the violence erupting in Lod and Batyam and Akko and other places. Um, but I think we as a society and perhaps with Palestinians need to decide where we want to go. One thing, and I mean this very pragmatically, um, we have to keep in mind that we are a people that achieves the impossible. Coming back to our land, reviving our ancient language, um, all of the great successes uh, that our, our state has enjoyed over the last 75 years uh, that you mentioned earlier, 
defeating the British Empire in a military conflict. You know, according to British documents, they left this country because of Jewish terrorism. All of these things are examples of us achieving the impossible. So when we come together to discuss where we want to go, and and I think that there of course should be room for many different perspectives. You know, you know, like they say, two Jews, three opinions. We're gonna have many, many, many fierce disagreements on the goals of Jewish history are and where we need to go from here. But I think one thing we should keep in mind is that we don't lower the ideal. I think pragmatism should be a tool to achieve the ideal, not an excuse to lower the bar, not an excuse to shy away from it. We should really decide what we want, what victory looks like for us, what a happy ending to Jewish history looks like for us, and pursue that uh, as best as we can. We might disagree over what policies to implement to get there, but, but I think that we really need to have a very clear vision of what the ideal of Israeli society looks like in our heads so that we can find ways to work. And, and by the way, I don't think, I, I, I really don't believe that if we had this conversation, we would end up all disagreeing. I think that there'd be a lot of consensus about what kind of country we want this to be. Um, we might have deep disagreements over how to get there. You know, you mentioned before, I just want to throw in here that uh, you can suspect and I can suspect what motivates Benjamin Netanyahu's political moves. Your guess is probably as good as mine because at the end of the day, uh, Bibi is one of the most difficult politicians to read. You know, I suspect he's driven by a deep revisionist Zionist ideology. Um, other people have different perspectives, but I think he does a good job keeping it ambiguous. And I think intentionally, I think Bibi is one of those political figures who doesn't want the public to know what he really thinks and really wants uh, in order to give himself what he considers to be maximum maneuverability. Uh, another point I just want to throw in here about Bezalel Smotrich and that map, um, that map, for those who don't know, is the map of what Zev Jabotinsky and the revisionist Zionist movement believe to be our legal borders, because that's what apparently the Balfour Declaration and League of Nations granted us. I'm personally of the perspective that Balfour and the League of Nations have no right to tell us what our borders are to begin with, so it's almost irrelevant to me. Uh, but to be fair, Smoltrich was speaking at a revisionist Zionist event in France, like a Betar France thing, and that's just the map they have on the podium. Uh, I, I don't think, the truth is, if you were to ask Vitello Smoltrich what our borders are, I suspect he might say they're a lot bigger than what's presented in that map. It happened to be that he was, uh, you know, that, that he was standing behind the wrong podium when they took the picture and that became a thing. Yes. Uh, but before we finish, I'd like to ask you a favor. Yes. Uh, it's not a secret that you often criticize me personally in your articles, and that's okay. Uh, you and I are on opposing sides of a very deep rift in Israeli society, and it's your right, maybe even your duty, to critique those you think are wrong and those you think are pushing Israel in a problematic and dangerous direction. But the one request I'd like to make of you is that you be honest in your depiction of me, that you focused whatever criticisms you have on my actual positions and not on positions that other people have tried to attribute to me. I've put out enough podcast episodes and enough opinion pieces and writing to make clear what I think to make clear where I believe the people of Israel are right now, where I think we need to go in order to advance. And I'm sure uh, you and your friends can find plenty of things to disagree with 
and to criticize in my actual positions. You don't need to exaggerate. You don't need to sensationalize me. You don't need to draw from other writers like Abe Reisman, who've tried to misrepresent me in the past. You know, I like to believe that my ideas are powerful. My ideas are controversial enough as they are. They don't need to be exaggerated or sensationalized to scare your readers. Just to be clear, I'm, I'm of the opinion that journalism can have a political agenda and still be high quality, honest journalism. Like, I don't think journalism needs to be unbiased. So I will in uh, what I will say is that I think what, uh, you know, I think after I released that article, I think you did a podcast on the article. And I think that one thing that I can say about both of us is that we both come from very, as you've mentioned, very different perspectives from completely opposing sides. But I think that both of us, through the methods of which we express our views and our professional opinions, have handled ourselves in a professional manner. I wrote an article on you, I'm a writer, you did a podcast in response to the article that I wrote. I, um, I, I'm not the kind of person that believes in uh, uh, talking about someone as many people do behind their backs and not having that as, as a, a, a public opinion in my perspective. All I can say is that um, as an analyst, I look at what is being said and I analyze it through my lens. The way in which that article was written was clearly from, a, from my own perspective and was clearly not a personal um, attack on you. And I hope that you didn't feel that was a personal attack on you. It was me analyzing essentially what I am seeing from what is being said. And I think that that is the best that anyone can, can do, um, you know, uh, the same as, uh, you know, the same as this podcast started with me being essentially labeled neo-Zionist and you, ex you express your opinion on, 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 on what neo-Zionism is, but neo-Zionism is actually very much an ideological movement that represents the far right in Israel, which is very opposed to what I am. So, but I understand you, you, I appreciate that you clarified that and I did my best in the article to clarify what I meant and I, what I do appreciate about you and which I did try to express in the article is I didn't just clump you in with a group of ideological thinkers. Okay. I spoke about how interesting and eloquent and astute and charming you were and how you speak persuasively about the collaboration of spirits and the body politic. And, um, and, uh, all I can essentially do is analyze from my perspective and in, in what I'm saying. And that's why it's an opinion piece. I'm not presenting it as, that it is uh, indisputable fact. I'm not disputing that what I might have projected about you was wrong in some cases. All I'm saying is this is my analysis of what is being said. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time afterwards to address that and, I, uh, and, and uh, in your podcast. And I think that um, both of us have voices and have our own followings within the community and different segments of the community. And I think that the way in which we both approached essentially our engagement with each other on that was, was at a highly professional level. And I hope you feel the same way. I personally, you know, took absolutely no offense to what was said in the podcast. I, uh, I was, um, I was happy that you did it. I, I welcomed it. And, uh, you know, I think, um, 
I think the unfortunate circumstance of the of the of the current reality in which, especially of, of what is happening in the diasporic conversation, is almost calls for false unity. Um, and why? I, what I mean by false unity is that one can be unified as a people and as a nation and still have deep disagreements and be willing to debate them um, at, a, at, a, at an intense level. That is something that has made Israel itself incredibly successful. It is very much a part of the fabric of what the Zionist movement represented and why uh, the Zionist Congress was such a successful body that led to the establishment of the State of Israel. And um, I believe that uh, me and you sitting here today, who come from two opposing sides, who have spoken to each other with um, respect, um, are, are, are evident in some ways of that. And I think that, you know, I, you mentioned in the beginning that I'm a, a writer and a researcher and a political theorist, and I, I write a lot of articles and analysis on, uh, on Israel and Israel from within. And, um, and, and that is essentially part of what I was, part of what I was doing in the article, which was, which was only about two paragraphs of the article. Um, but uh, essentially, I hope that you feel the same way that I feel about it. And, and that's why I was more than happy to accept the invitation to come and speak to you on the podcast is because I felt that I handled the situation. I, I wrote about, I, I did this in, in the manner in which I deemed to be professional, the same way as people have written articles criticizing my views on on uh, occupation as the results of a war, not the cause of the war, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's various different things that are out there, um, and uh, and I appreciated you taking the time to use your platform to re to respond to that and to to do that in in a professional way, rather than you know other people take essentially the the other road out and uh, and essentially engage in very unprofessional behaviour. All of our personal engagement has been positive. Like I said early in the program, I find you to be a very intelligent, eloquent spokesperson for neo-Zionism. By the way, I think my definition of neo-Zionism is a little better than yours. I know, I know that once upon a time, Yishai Fleischer tried to call himself a neo-Zionist, but that didn't really stick and it doesn't really exist. But I think from a scientific perspective, like, you know, applying Zionist ideology, as you do, applying Zionist ideology to our current moment and the current needs of the Jewish people would be the best definition for neo-Zionism. But that's, that's something we can continue to debate. Uh, all I'm saying is, if you critique me for my actual positions, I then get the opportunity to think about your criticism and re-examine my positions. But if you or anyone else critiques me for positions that aren't really mine, then there's not much I can do with that. There's no place for introspection. There's no room for growth on my end. Like it just feels like someone's spreading lies about me unnecessarily. So my impulse in that situation is just to reject the criticism. Like I know that you you wrote in one article, you, you put in quotes, post-democratic, that I was aiming for some kind of Israel that's no longer democratic, where I've been seeing myself fighting for an Israel that's more democratic than it is right now. And anyone who reads what I write or listens to my podcast knows that I'd like to see Israel become much more democratic than it is right now. So, you know, putting something like post-democratic in quotes, that felt really dishonest to me. I'm being honest with you. 
um, saying that I support Itamar Ben Gvir or Otsma Yudit when I've never done such a thing. I honestly have always considered Ben Gvir to be a little bit of a clown. He's not impressing me now. The only place he's ever maybe impressed me is as a, a lawyer or a practical joker. He's got some electoral skill. I'll give him that. I think there are a lot more Israelis, at least last time around. Definitely has electoral skill. There's no doubt about that. But he's never been my candidate, never been my party. All I'm saying is whatever attacks you want to throw my way, focus on my real positions. I could then decide if those positions are worth defending or worth rethinking. It's a much healthier process, in my opinion. I'm not looking at you as an enemy. I'm looking at you as a chavruta. I'm looking at you as someone who represents a true position in the Jewish people. Like I think most of what you're saying, I disagree with a lot of your political conclusions, but I, I think where you're coming from is a place of truth in Am Yisrael. And I think it's a truth that at least on the surface stands against the truth that I represent. And I think we can sharpen each other, as you said, through your articles, through my podcast, we both have platforms. Sometimes we can do things like this and collaborate and air our disagreements publicly together. <laughs> but that's really what I'm asking. I'm saying it's a healthier process. I get we're political opponents. I get that we stand on different sides of a deep divide in Israeli society. That's okay. You know, at the end of the day, if I have to go fight for this country, I'm fighting for you too. And the same would be for me. All right. So that's all I'm asking. Just make sure. And you could even check, by the way, you could even check with me. You could say, is this your position? I have no problem saying, yeah, that's my position, or you got it slightly wrong. What Reisman did in his tabloid piece in Daily Beast was really dishonest, and it was really much more about sensationalizing me as some kind of character's figure, and much less about my ideas. Many times throughout the process of him writing that piece, I said to him, I, what I care most about is that you get the ideas right. And he did not do that. There are a lot of things he said that stood in contrast to things I've said to him, emails I had written to him. In some cases, he even took some of Rudy Rockman's ideas and put them in my mouth. Like those are not my positions. So yeah. if you want to... You... I, mean, I mean, something that I that I did try to distinguish in the article was that your, yours, uh, yours and Rudy's positions are not exactly the same. I don't think that would be fair to classify that on, it, on anyone. I've worked very closely, example, with, with Enoch Wolf, who's also a Zionist, and I assume that you would you would say that she was a neo-Zionist through your perspective of what that is, uh, but we disagree on certain things and we have the, uh, you know, that's why we write well and work well together, because we can challenge each other in that way. What I can say to you is that I will always do my best to maintain utmost professionalism. If you feel that something was misrepresented, uh, uh, misrepresented um, of you, uh, that's why I, when you know when you reached out to me, I appreciated that and I thank you for doing so. And um, I, you know, I we can I mean we can address the the specific uh, issues probably for the next three hours. So so I don't I don't think that's uh, you know uh, necessary. All I can say is that I am uh, I always appreciate being able to engage with people who in in many instances there's there's still things we agree on. You know, and there's been things we have agreed on on this podcast itself. Um, but I, um, at least we found commonality with each other at some central, some central point or principle. Um, I find you to be a credit to your political camp. Meaning if I'm going to engage intellectually with a representative of your political camp, I think you're a good person for me to engage with. 
Thank you. I, I very much appreciate it. And I very much appreciate you having me on board. And um, I have taken what you've said and I've processed it. And it was definitely something that if I ever do decide to, you know, I, I write on many, 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 many different topics and I try not um, to regurgitate a specific topic too many times, especially if it's been published and it's out there. But if it is something if it is something that comes up again for any particular reason or there's any particular political trigger or something that occurs, then I will most definitely uh, uh, bear in mind everything that you've said to me towards the end of the podcast. And uh, and I yeah, I appreciate you having me on and I appreciate being able to to speak about these contentious topics. And and I, you know, I think that at the end of the day, what we what we both acknowledge is that the protests both for or against of the separating lines actually have very little to do with in theory judicial reform uh, yay or nay if i could put it that way but it's more a fight for the fabric of the state and that leads us to an important conversation on what is israel and how those institutions function and that's something that has been a debate in the knesset almost from its uh, from its inception as it was from the early zionist congress and can be now discussed as the as we are in the uh, a different century and in a different time it's an important conversation to keep open yeah i already foresee the topic of our next podcast together fantastic well i appreciate uh, like i said i appreciate you having me on board why don't you tell our listeners where they can find your work um okay so i um i work for um uh think tank which is actually based out of washington i do the israel analysis called foundation for the defense of democracies i also work with various think tanks within the country one is called impact se israel democracy institute Mitvim, various other things but basically the best thing to do in order to find my work particularly if you're looking to read my stuff is to follow me either on instagram or twitter which is where i have regular articles and i always post them either to my stories or to the pages and there's a link in my bio that has basically all the articles I've written, at least the ones I've written in the last year. Uh, so my handle on Instagram is Samuel Joshua Hyde, and that's Hyde like Hyde Park, H-Y-D-E. And on Twitter, uh, I think it is Samuel J. Hyde 11, because there happened to be another Samuel Joshua Hyde who stole my, my the potential for that username. But uh, that that is where essentially I post uh, all these opinions that Yehuda has uh, engaged with me on today and articles, etc. All right, Samuel Hyde, thank you so much for joining me. This was a great conversation. Um, I want to wish you and all our listeners a Chag Yom Atzmaut Sameach. To you too. And uh, listeners can find the show notes to this podcast by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage nine six. And once again, I just want to remind listeners that this show is completely listener funded. Shows like this one very much exist as a result of your support. So if you're interested in sponsoring uh, an episode of this show or other projects at the Vision Movement, you can go to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and click donate on the menu bar up top. Sam, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, looking forward to our next conversation. You too. Thank you very much for having me.